Dearly departed, fold your arms across your chest, pay the ferryman a piece of silver, and hope you don't get stuck in the boat next to Jerry from work, who never shuts up about his fantasy football league. Ah, <sighs> because it's time to talk tall to me. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Omen Said. And I am Nick McGill. Together, we are Feckless Momes. And this is Talk Told to Me. A trip down the river Styx in the good fairy of Jethro Tull. Through the Elysian fields of the Jazz Ears, past the anti-inferno of Benefit, and under the sign which reads, Abandon hope, all ye who listen through the mid-80s. <laughs> we'll get past it. We'll get through it together. Every week, one more step further down that path until we reach the end. Beatrice is waiting for us. And so is Ian Anderson. <laughs> he is he is our Beatrice. He is. He is. So Nick, Omen, here we are. Here we are. We are on week 2 of a passion play. Indeed. But, mm. but before we do that, we have an Anglo correspondence from our buddy John oh. across the pond. And we've got some more more passion play info that we're going to get into. So first, let's uh, dive into John's email real quick. Thank you. Mary's actually on break right now. That's her brother, Marley. Marley! Yeah, he looks a lot like Mary. It's confusing, but it's uh, it's Marley. She says I should ask you for my pay up front. <laughs> Marley, there are three cans of tuna in your bedroom. We we have an agreement. Ah, I'm gonna go kick the ducks. God, God he's more even more of a curmudgeon than I, Mary is. I, I, it's, it's Hopefully, she comes comes back a little a little happier. Yeah. <laughs> From John. On this week's Talk Tull to Me, you asked about O and A levels. Yes, we did. That's right. We talked about Ian's Ian's schooling and, and how I think it had to do with Gerald Bostock as well. O for ordinary levels were taken at the end of the fifth year of secondary school for 11 to 16 year olds. Students had some choice at the end of the third year what subjects they wanted to study. Hmm. Ian Anderson at Blackpool Grammar School would have probably taken eight or nine O levels in different subjects. Oh, my. So to me, that's in New York State. That's just the regents exams, right? That's all it is. I guess so. Maybe a little earlier. Yeah, 16. I don't know. Regents are what? Like... Sophomore year? Junior year? I've blocked all that out of my memory, Nick. I know. It was a very long time ago. If he had stayed at school after 16, rather than being expelled, he would have gone into the sixth form and taken 3A for advanced level subjects, with exams after two years at around 18. Instead, he went to Blackpool College of Art. 
I found an article about Blackpool Grammar School from 1956, two years before Ian Anderson would have started in September 1958. Oh. It indicates that the headmaster when Ian Anderson was there was Reverend H.M. Luft. Hyam Mark Luft went back to Merchant Taylor's Boys School as headmaster in 1964, so he must have been, quote, my old headmaster, unquote, referred to in oh. wind Oh. Yeah. A little tuft of the Luft there. Very cool. John did some awesome digging and, and came up with that. Yes. And, and he, he wraps up with, incidentally, it is still a legal requirement for all schools in England to have a daily act of collective worship, quote, of a broadly Christian character, unquote. Oh. Many schools ignore this nowadays, but in the 1960s, every child, unless their parents specifically asked for them to be withdrawn, would have taken part singing hymns, hearing a Bible story with an instructive talk, and joining in prayers. Oh, my. Most parents did not go to church, but were happy for their children to have this as part of their time at school. Thanks again for your insights in the podcast. They are a weekly treat. Kind regards, John. Thank you, John. John, thank you for doing more research than we even do sometimes. <laughs> it's, it is fantastic sometimes. to have you. <laughs> he did more research than we've done in this entire podcast. Nick. Probably over the year, over the years, yeah. Yes, we, we greatly appreciate your reaching out to us and you're giving us that info that we, we probably could have figured out on our own, but you are a great mind to pick and... We're pretty good at just speculating. We're pretty happy with just speculating. I I just want to draw out something that John uh, described there, which was that while most parents didn't attend church, they were happy for their children to be getting some form of religious experience. Yeah. That just sort of reeks of the double standards in, in the society that Ian must have been growing up in. Sure. Against which you feel him railing in, in so many of his songs. Yeah, which is, I think, exactly why John gave us that, a little more oh, perspective on, on Ian's experience, er, particularly early on with, with religion and being right. forced to do things, etc. Yeah. So again, thank you, John, for that kind of reinforcing the ideas that we've been kind of spitballing back and forth. Yeah. Well, Nick, now we are going to be moving on from the history of the 1960s. Mm-hmm to the history of Christianity itself. It's pretty apt, actually. Yeah. We wanted to give you a little brief discussion of what the phrase, a passion play, actually means. Because mm-hmm. it is a thing. It is an actual thing. That's right. So a, a passion play is the performance of the Passion of the Christ, which of course, refers to the, the final days of the, life of the life of Jesus Christ and specifically the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. These performances were begun in the church and, and by the church in the, I believe, the, the Middle Ages and have continued through up to this very day. In fact, the largest outdoor theater in the entire world, which is in Brazil, was specifically built 
four productions of The Passion Play and involves 500 actors at a time. Goodness knows how hard that choreographer has to work to get them all (laughs) kick-lining at the same time. Fascinating. And and the uh, the Passion Play is usually performed around Easter. It it evolved Mm. out of a more general Easter drama, I believe. And the fascinating thing is, Nick, that these early Christian performances, which are, of course, related to the mystery mystery play cycles, which happen at other times of the year, Mm -hmm. actually gave rise to a lot of the modern theater forms that we still experience today because hmm. initially these performances would would be done by members of the church but gradually they started to move into the purview of some of the local guilds so the the church would would essentially subcontract let's say the butcher's guild to do the play this year this year the, the butcher's oh. guild gets to do it and Interesting. So, so they would. I work... thought you meant like an actors' guild, but were there? Uh, well, oh, okay. All right, go. Jump in the gun. So eventually, there was uh, eventually some guild or other realized, "Hey, we're pretty good at this. What if we all stopped being butchers and just did this sort of thing full time?" Hmm. And they were the original group of people to severely disappoint their parents. <laughs> <laughs> but they. So eventually there was a transition from the <laughs> religious performances to the professional performances. And, one of you know, uh, at some point in European history, probably in Italy, one of these groups decided to just abandon their trade and go off on the road and start doing secular content. And that was the birth of the Commedia dell'arte, which, as we know, mm-hmm. influenced highly the works of Shakespeare, Moliere, all the great uh, European playwrights and... Mm-hmm the traces of which we still see in Looney Tunes. So, yeah. if you like if you like cartoon comedy, you can thank the Catholic Church. If you like cartoon comedy, you'll love a passion play. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I I just want to I just want a bit of a caveat here, a bit of an explanation. Omen and I can rag on on actors in the arts because we both went to school for acting. Yes. If you if you couldn't tell. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. Yeah. We'll that's cry. why I'm in my that's why I'm in my basement recording a, <laughs> a podcast about Jethro Tull. <laughs> yep. Hooray! Okay, so that's that is a passion play in general, and I just wanted to dig into the. A little bit more info about the album itself right quick before we dive into track quote unquote track number two so in 72 it was a solid year for for tull as a band they had thick as a brick come out which hit number one following the success of aqualung and then in november of 72 that's when living in the past came out which was received very well interesting it was top 10 on in both England and the States as well. So then that's when they repaired to the Chateau, an 18th century Chateau outside of, outside of Paris. So a description of the Chateau from Ian Anderson himself, it was a rundown, rambling old building, 
and it had been the studio of choice for those availing themselves of the quote-unquote offshore opportunities of tax avoidance in the heady days of 83% income tax. We assumed it must be a great studio, given the reputation and work of the artists who'd recorded there. Pink Floyd, T-Rex, and Elton John had been previous visitors. But it was dirty, the equipment often didn't work, and the accommodation was awful. So that's where they recorded or were planning to record things like Tiger Tune and First Post and Look at the Animals. You can see that the overarching theme was an erosion of traditional culture in the face of modern progress and new technology, all with a skin of the animal kingdom. Right. That's where we see the story of the hare who lost his spectacles. And we see a lot of animal themes in those songs that got put over into War Child, which right. we'll be talking about next. Which has a lot of animal themes itself. Sea lion. Right. Sea lion, bungle in the jungle. Right. Yeah, things like that. It's amazing that any of that recording equipment was still working at all, considering it had been there since the Middle Ages. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, they built the chateau to put recording equipment in there. Yeah. 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 The amps yeah. were all powered by peasant children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had to feed him one heel of bread a day. <laughs> it had to be moldy, though. It had to be moldy. Otherwise, they just didn't like it. Yeah. So technical difficulties with that, that dodgy equipment, of course. But they also got a... They all got food poisoning at one point. Oh, gosh. Another quote from Ian... Together with the restlessness in the ranks of the band, mainly on account of having to run for the loo at regular intervals, courtesy of the dodgy, unpasteurized camembert. The red wine had flies in it. The mystery meat caused musicians to head loo words at a fast gallop, quite in keeping with its equine origins. I was just wondering. (laughs) There were bed bugs, and one engineer even got a nasty scabies parasite infection. Yeah. I remember the first time that I walked into a grocery store in France and smelled the camembert. It was um it's quite overpowering. It's and it's not like one of those those good cheese smells. It's, or is it? Is it like cuz no. cuz there's there are some like really funky cheese smells that are like oh my god that is both offensive and amazing. I guess it probably is a developed taste in terms of smell, but for me and I think I remember even a lot of French people discussing this, that that you don't eat camembert for the smell. You eat it because it tastes amazing, but you have to sort of get through the smell mm. first. Kind of like durian. Yes, exactly. Like durian. Yeah. Like durian fruit. Yeah. Which is illegal on many subway systems. Yeah. As is listening to the works of Jethro Tull. It's true. It's true. Yeah. We are we are we are pirate pirate tull radio here. So so the whole reason they went to Switzerland in 72 was because they were just starting to really rake in money and income tax in Britain was super high. It was 82% at the time. 82%. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe, it doesn't say it in this article, but I believe it said it in the Ballad of Jethro Tull. I think Terry Ellis pushed for them to move to Switzerland. Well, I'm sure as their, as their producer, he would have been angling just to 
cut down on production costs or right. you know cut down on on the government's take. The ironic thing, of course, is that they ended up probably paying that tax anyway after having spent all the money to go to Europe because mm. they ended up recording this back in London. Right, right. And it, it, the whole point of becoming Swiss citizens, though, is is they they would have that address and the money would go to them so they wouldn't have to pay it at all. Like and the plan was to live there indefinitely, you know. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the whole point of, of having Swiss residency is because your income goes to you in Switzerland, not in England. Mm, mm hmm. So a couple of the band members, John Evan and Martin Barr, were happy to live in Switzerland, apparently. But Barrymore and Jeffrey Hammond wanted to go back to England. Ian was kind of in the middle. He didn't really care, but he felt that if he sided with the people who wanted to stay in Switzerland, it would ultimately break up the band. So he he was the deciding vote to move everybody back to England. Wow. Yeah. What a strange little European adventure these gentlemen had. Yeah, it says something about the band though that they could get past this cuz this seems like it could it could be a deal breaker for for the band itself. It could have dissolved based well, on all of this. And of course, most of those individuals moved on in later years anyway. But at this time, well, yeah. But they made at least one more album. Well, I mean, they made a passion play when they got back and right. then they made I'm not sure the 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 lineup for War Child, but I don't think it's that drastically different. Well, you know, I think it does speak to Ian's ability as a leader of a group of people. Sure. Um, to to negap to navigate to navigate all of that. Yeah. And also to the success and fun that the band must have been having at the time, that they decided. Well, even you know that some members decided. Well, even though this isn't what I want to do, it's still worth it to be with this band anyway. Yeah. Yeah, there, I'm sure there was a lot of weighing of pros and cons, but for the most part, they were really on a solid role. And it, I, it seems like none of them really wanted to end that. They wanted to make it work. Absolutely. So just one more final quote from Ian about a passion play. It's like a rather disappointing grown-up child. You don't exactly want it coming over for Sunday lunch each weekend, but when Christmas dawns, you welcome the rotten fruit of your loins into the family bosom once again and try to conjure a swelling of paternal pride. Goodness me. <laughs> Which is is very well said, and, and it, honestly, that's the way it feels like with his references to this album that I've yeah. heard in the past. Also, Fruit of My Loins is a wonderful uh, underwear brand. Brought to you by Ian Anderson. <laughs> the Ian Anderson brand <laughs> underpants. Mm -hmm. Yes. Built-in codpiece. So that is it. That, that is all that I have for Passion Play info. Do you have anything else or are we ready to just jump right in? I think well, that we are should. Are we ready to finally jump into Act 2? Of a passion play. I think we should nail ourselves to the wooden cross of this second part of the album, Nick. This one is called The Memory Bank, a small but comfortable theater with a cinema screen the next morning. This is the next 14 minutes. Let's settle in and have a listen. Everybody take a nap.
also, that was the longest 14 minutes of my life, but in a good way. <sighs> yeah. Well, you know, like, like the space after this life of ours, it is both an absolute eternity and forever. <laughs> so it's both the same thing. Mm, yes. <laughs> so Nick, uh, a, a lot, a lot going on there, isn't there? Yes, a lot to unpack. Mm -hmm. Shall we? Shall we start with the sounds that we heard musically? Yes. Yeah. That's that. That will inevitably be the quicker route to to take. So, Nick, I have to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. For me, the musical themes of this album are a little hard to to process. They often, for me, reach a point of cacophony. Mm -hmm. And yes, you know, it's not it's not fair to compare things. But let's compare this to um, the previous concept album that we just talked about. I think it is absolutely fair to to compare to Thick as a Brick. Yeah. Oh, very good. <laughs> that's that's what I'm about to do. I think that with with Thick as a Brick, there are some really clear, really inspiring, mm -hmm. fun musical themes. And your wise men don't know how it feels. Oh, a little duet with Tiki. To be thick as a brick. And your wise men don't know how it feels. As a break. Like that's a lovely melody. Mm -hmm. Here we have dum 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 dum. We have to. We we cannot separate it from the circumstances under which it was recorded. Quickly. It quickly thrown together. Right, because Thick as a Brick took, what, they had six weeks to do it? I think they, they did it between the start of rehearsal in the Rolling Stones mobile studio, the the rehearsing, the writing process, and then the recording. I think it came out to about four to six weeks. And yeah. this was more like two. I think so, yeah. Right. Yeah, so there this was... was like, oh crap, we need we need a, an, an album. Let's so there do was it. there was less time to say, Oh, I'm John Evan. i here's a little tune I'd like to throw at you. What do you think about yeah. this? Twiddly Dee, and then you know, someone else says, Oh, I like that, but let's you know do it like this. Yeah. I imagine I imagine that Ian being the leader that he is ended up just sort of saying, all right, you do this, you do this, you do this, figure it yeah, out. Yeah, this is what we're doing. Let's one, go. One take, now we're moving on to the next bit. Yeah. Well, But even so, the the actual melodies of this are less inspiring. I mean, even the sort of central mm -hmm. melody of, there was a rush along the Fulham Road, there was a hush in the Passion Play. There was a rush It's it's 
It's it's heavier. It's not as nuanced. It's clearly not as well thought out, and it, it's evident that they didn't have the time to really dedicate to it. All that being said, when you do look at it as disparate pieces of, of instruments, you know, of of little snippets here and there, there are some really nice and pleasant parts to that. Yes. And in this section, we have a couple of those. Uh, exactly. Yeah. The start of it, that really pretty, just simple acoustic and drum that then breaks into the bass and organ. Then there's that really funky saxophone again. which we continue to hear, which I adore. And then Ian goes into his really frantic flute. That's some good tall. All before we get yeah. into any of the lyrics, mind you. Right. But that that full instrumental intro part that's some really good tall it is and you know even even pressed for time and not having the space to be as well composed as they sometimes are they're mm -hmm. still amazing musicians and they still work really well together they do yeah. there are also some really innovative fun moments kind of moving Moving on to the lyric sections, but not specifically talking about the lyrics. There's the section of, uh, what is it? Here's your ID, ID oh, for yeah. identifying. It's very fun. One and all. Yeah. Here's your ID, ideal for identifying. One and all. It's unique, you know, like so much of Tall is, and it's... It's really different than anything else that they've done, and it's a it's mm -hmm. it's a kind of a playful rhythm. It's just darker. Okay, I'm gonna say something, Nick. I I've been waiting for this finally for 35 years. I will open my mouth. I this album is the benefit of this period of time. Ooh, in that it's dark. Okay. And there's a lot of feelings. Okay. And it kind of all mushes together a little bit and is a really amazing artistic piece that isn't necessarily for the general palette. Okay. I like it. So so this this is Tall Phase 2 which began with Thick as a Brick, I'm guessing, correct? Yeah, let's say, or let's say Aqualung. Aqualung is the bridge, either way. Aqualung okay, goes yeah. either way. Okay, yeah, I like that. I like that. I think that is very, very accurate. This, however, there is a certain poetry that Benefit has that I think this one is lacking. Yes, this is a more aggressive kind of nightmare scape, whereas Benefit is just sort of an angsty dreamscape. This is this is performance art first and foremost and it smacks very heavily even more so than thick as a brick I think it smacks very heavily of Monty Python 
I totally agree, and it and it actually it jumps the shark of Python. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because it's it's not only absurdist; it's absurdist, but also f- highly philosophical. Mm-hmm. Whereas okay. whereas Python usually keeps it keeps it light. You know, they sort of dance around philosophical themes. This yeah. is like. The, the in this album Ian Anderson is stomping the grapes of philosophy to create a bitter foot wine that we are lapping up right now deliciously so yeah an, another another reference to tie in one of my favorite sets of lines in any tall to be honest to to kind of go back and tie into your here's your id ideal for identifying one and all yes is our friend Jeffrey Hammond and your little sister's immaculate virginity wings away on the bony shoulders of a young horse named George, who stole surreptitiously into her geography revision. Ah. The examining body examined her body. And your little sister's immaculate virginity wings away on the bony shoulder of a young horse named George, who stole surreptitiously into her geography revision. The examining body. It's so. <laughs> it's amazing wordplay. A lot yes, of this is. album is really beautiful wordplay. Yes, absolutely, and and I think that it's now starting to get almost impossible to discuss the music without talking about the words because the words are so rhythmically composed. Yes, like I think absolutely. that's where the kind of genius of this album lies. With with thick as a brick, the genius is lies in how amazingly. The themes are are plaited together, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in this, I think that it really is the, the music is is just a vehicle, just like a a big diesel engine, right, funneling us down the screaming railroad tracks to a hellish philosophy. This is more this is more epic poem than anything. In the sense that there is no rhyme scheme. It's really, like you said, the rhythm. And that's, I mean, that's how people would remember how to recite the Aeneid and the Odyssey is it was, it was the orators had a set way and that helped you remember it better than just kind of off the cuff reading a story or reciting a story, there was a rhythm to it. There was a flow to it. And that's that's how we got iambic pentameter. And, and those poetic devices is based on how orators would remember thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of text. Indeed, yes. The rhythm. And, the rhythm and that's helps. how this feels. You know, Nick, we were talking about being having a background in theater the other day. Mm-hmm. You know, I have been told by people close to me that my memory for certain things is not super great. You know, things like dates and times and appointments and such. Inconsequential things, obviously. Inconsequential things, like people's birthdays or where I'm supposed to be. But, <laughs> but you know, the other day I was brushing my teeth and I, I... The other day I remembered to brush my teeth I, for the first time in two weeks. I was performing my toilette. And I, <laughs> I looked into the mirror and suddenly just recited an entire speech from the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I haven't performed mm. since I was about 14 years old. 
So after two after two decades, word for word, there it was. Tears and toothpaste streaming down your face. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the way Shakespeare intended it. <laughs> so without further adieu. I, oh I think there is an adieu. Okay. <laughs> At least in a do. Before we, we're, I know we're going to dive into lyrics, but oh, the yes. last piece that I want to talk about has no lyrics. That's why I want to throw it in right here. That Please. very last instrumental, Forest Dance Number One, right at the end. How does that go, right Nick? At the end of a, it's that flowing. Okay, I, I can't do it. I'll, I'm not going to do it. You do the flute line. I'll do the under bits. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's very, it's mesmeric. We might have to pay it's royal right fees the, on that performance. It, it, I, that was too accurate, actually. It was, it, it flows right into the hair who lost a spectacle. Well, it stops with a jolt, but it's just so, oh my gosh, it's so yeah, beautiful. It's great. It's so, so pretty. It, it It's light and it's airy. And between the, the flute and the acoustic, it's... It's kind of a nice respite. It's kind of, I know we've used this this analogy a lot, but it's a really nice palate cleanser in between kind of the cacophony that is the last 12 and a half minutes, 13 minutes that we listen to before it jumps into another kind of really harsh portion, which is the hair who lost his spectacles. It's like a delicious light of fresh fruit bavois after a roast dinner. Correct. That's that's I have that in my notes. So before we completely run out of time, we should talk about the lyrics. Yes. Yeah. We've we've got a lot of lyrics to that we could talk about. But ultimately, Tiki, no, this Tiki, no. Oh, my. Tiki, oh, my God. <laughs> the lyrics are broken up into a couple of portions yes. called the memory bank. Right. Best friends and critique oblique. Indeed, which I think we can all kind of t- talk about is is one solid piece. But ultimately, what it boils down to is it is Ronnie going into this this viewing room, and he meets his his judges. Yes, and they 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 say, "Hey, by the way, we've been recording your entire life. Let's sit down." And look at it, and we will judge you in real time. The thing that I think is so wonderful about the way that Ian presents us with those images is the the kind of bureaucratic mm-hmm. sense of it, and it it feels kind of Kafka esque, if you will. It's because yeah. it, because it's so matter of fact, and it's like, oh, by the way, mm-hmm. would you like you know you can pay for a snack if you'd like? Yeah. It's there's it, there's this dark reality, and he says it with such confidence that we just we just accept it for, yes. for what it is, and and that it's it it also functions as perhaps the the entertainment for the underworld. You know, I love I love that mm. there's the line. Let me see if I can find it here. All along the icy wastes, there are smiling faces in the gloom. All along the icy wastes, there are faces smiling in the gloom. So, Nick, that really reminded me of something, and I, I looked it up, and it reminded me of the description that Ovid uh, uses mm. to describe Orpheus's descent into the underworld. He dared okay. descend by the Tenarian gate down to the gloomy Styx, and there 
passed through pale glimmering phantoms and the ghosts escaped from sepulchres until he found Persephone and Pluto, master king of shadow realms below, and then began to strike his tuneful lyre. So that description of the shades, you know, these these mm. these faded spirits of people who who still have some sense of individuality but have but are hungry for for a, 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 a more living soul. Yeah. And and let's let's remember or let's let's remind our listeners classically hell was a cold place was frozen the the ninth layer of hell satan is frozen yes into the ice absolutely and and in in uh, pre-christian dis- descriptions of the underworld it is more often described as being cold and damp mm. like my basement like so my heart. we 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 have <laughs> The, the dampness is a concern. Yeah. So the we have we have Catholicism to blame for the the heat of hell, and really really late later Christianity as, as well. Because as you said, Dante describes the coldness. I think it was really more. It wasn't really until I think Americans mm, kind probably, of start, yeah. started working on. Christianity that we really had the fire and brimstone type stuff. Mm. Yeah, Old Testament later stuff, yeah. Old Testament like new shoes. <laughs> Don't step in anything. So we so we have the memory bank in in which one mm-hmm. is forced to review one's own life kind of beat by beat. Yeah, we have we have some some particularly notable moments in here. Yes. I like the uh, the kind of parade of images. Take the prize for instant pleasure, crick, uh, captain of the cricket team. Take the prize for instant pleasure, captain of the cricket team. How this weekend in the weather's a nice from a queen. Just sort of like it's sort of like this quick quick shots of images that that don't necessarily go together. But I think are like yeah. snapshots of a life at various points. They they montaged his his highlights here. Yeah, it's the mega mix. Yeah, it's it's like when they do an in memoriam in like the Oscars or something, and right, it's just right, the, right. the really powerful scenes of that person's life. Yeah. So before we leave memory bank, I just want to go into the ice cream lady wets her drawers to see you in the passion play. Yeah, is that because it's so funny? I saw a different interpretation, actually. But I like that. I do like that. The The ice cream lady is his mother, the woman who brought him ice cream. Oh. And she wets her drawers, meaning her water broke, to see you in the passion play, meaning she gave birth to him to put oh, him into this world, this Nick. life. Oh, perceptive. That's great. I like that very much. 100% not mine. You stole that. But I'll 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 use it. You it was are a t- such a good thief. I'm It is from Diathin 2 years ago. He put this on genius.com. Tiki agrees though. So, I mean, I can't I can't argue that. She she hates protracted discussions of the afterlife. <laughs> Live in the now is really her 
kind of what we're taking away from this. So, Nick, I want to skip ahead to the best friends section because there's. Yep, I think it's. I think it's good. Move into that, yeah. You know, I love all your best friend's telephones never cooled from the heat of your hand. I think that's such a, a beautiful way of describing close friendships. That's really nice, actually, to see to see a, a really kind of compassionate side to Ronnie as opposed to yeah. him being just kind of like coldly represented. That's right. really nice. But it's the next line that I find very curious. Climb into your old umbrella. Does it have a nasty tear in the dome? Climb in your old umbrella. Does it have a nasty tear? So, Nick, this reminds me of a, I think it's a late Middle Ages concept of the afterlife that you find occasionally in very old ballads. Mm. And and that is that in order to pass from this life to any kind of realm of heaven, you have to pass through these these terrible challenges. And it and it describes sure. and it describes, you know, okay. You you can go to heaven, but first you have to pass across this icy plain that will absolutely freeze you, and and you'll be stuck there if you can't if you can't continue. Uh-huh. And the only thing that will protect you from the cold are all of the clothes that you've ever donated to poor people. Oh yeah, okay. And then it's like, oh, you know, here's the ferryman, and you know, you have to pay him a fee, and you can only pay using the coins that you have given to beggars. And mm. so there's this there's this concept of of your actions in life determining your ability to cross over into yeah. into paradise. On a simple level there secular? is yeah, on a secular level there's an irony there that is just re- that just really tickles my my storytelling bone. <laughs> you know, it's just so satisfying. Yes. And it's a it's a very useful way of thinking about your life. You know, it's like, oh, shall I give this coin to the beggar? I don't know. I could keep it for myself. Well, I might need it when I'm trying to pay the ferryman getting across the River Styx. So it's an investment. Yeah, yeah, but you you don't you don't know that the the best investment is to give it away. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. I don't know that that's what Ian is talking about about step inside your old umbrella, but. That's what it reminded me of, and so I offer you that tangent. I like it. I like it. I'm. I. I don't have anything better for that, certainly. So, and I, I want to go to the line right before that. Actually, there's a line in a front page story: thirteen horses that also ran. What's that about? 
I think that's how Ronnie died. He got hit by a 13 horsepower engine. <laughs> a car, a car, or I mean, I don't know how horsepower work. I'm very mechanically inept. You have to make, you have to squish them very small to get them under the hood of the car. So it's, I mean, so it must have been a very valuable to fit 13 horses in there. Um, horses. I wonder. <laughs> I, th- I think, because <laughs> it made the front page news. 13 horses that ran him over. Interesting. Why not? And it's such, it's kind of really satisfying that it's just a throwaway line. Right. Yeah. Because it's, it's at this point to Ronnie, it's fairly inconsequential. It doesn't matter how you died. You're here and we're going over the life prior to that having happened. Yeah. My only thought with that was that maybe he bet on the horses. Hmm. Which would tie back into your theory of he could have used that money to donate as opposed to having bet. Oh, interesting. But that I doesn't quite doesn't quite jive with that. There's a line in a front page story. Right, I agree. Yeah. Now, Nick, can we jump ahead a little bit? Yeah. Because the tone of this now starts to change. We get we move from the sort of rapid-fire descriptions of the life mm-hmm. to the, what I would describe as the judgment section. To the, the critique oblique? The critique oblique. Supposedly, critique oblique is a riposte to Tull's detractors in the music press. Oh. That's what it says in, in, in the Jethro Tull magazine. I'm not quite sure how that fits based on the lyrics, but... Well, lovers of the black and white could be anyone who works for the press because that's, that's you know, newspapers get printed in black and white. Yep. Lover of the black and white is your first night. The passion play goes all the way, spoils your insight. The passion play goes all the way, spoils your insight. It's sort of like saying... We're going to do something so hardcore that you can't possibly critique it. Looks like that backfired. Yeah, or or, or you critique us, but we we hit number one anyway. Ah, uh, yeah, it. that's nice. Yeah, which is slightly prescient because that's how it happened. Right. Now, just taking it on face value, it feels to me like... Going back to the concept of the of the hungry shades, mm-hmm. there's this repeating motif of tell us how the baby's made, how the lady's laid, how the mm-hmm. how the dog howls. Tell me how the baby's made, how the lady's laid, why the old dog howls in sadness. It reminds me of like you know, the souls which have been trapped underground for so long that that crave some kind of tasty treats from the world of light. And so they're okay. and so they're saying, you know, tell us about these things. Tell us, tell us, tell us before you yourself oh, forget yeah. and become uh-huh. a faded gray shade yourself. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Give us give us any semblance of humanity and life that you have before it's gone because we don't know when we're going to get it again. Right. And then musically, it reaches that fever pitch, ending with mm-hmm. the satisfaction of telling you how absolutely awful you really are. For the gory satisfaction of telling you how- 
And then it breaks, the fever kind of breaks, and it goes back to there was a rush along the Fulham Road. And then it goes into that forest dance section yeah. that you like so much. And it kind yeah. of feels, it reminds me of what my literature professor told me about the Divine Comedy, specifically in Purgatory. You know, after after seeing the souls all suffering in Inferno, he goes to Purgatory where everyone is going through not exactly punishments. They are punishments, but they're, they're punishments not not simply intended to punish, as it were, but to purify, to to purge, mm. from which we get purgatorio, mm-hmm. the individuals of their sin. And so there are all, there are all these images of, of crushing and twisting and distilling out the, either distilling the goodness or removing the badness from people. Yeah. And it almost feels like that section that we've just come out of is like that. It's like we're gonna we're gonna make you look at all the bad things you've ever done, so that you can pass by them and go on to the forest dance section, so that we can finally hear about the hare who lost his spectacles. Yeah, you you, you have to acknowledge your flaws, otherwise you'll never learn from them. Even if you, it's what's getting in you to get. Even if it's, even if it's what's getting you into heaven. Exactly. And. There is a there's a marked difference there because in terms of purgatory, the purging, it's it's the penance that you pay in order to get to heaven, whereas those specifically in the inferno in hell, they are being punished for the rest of time. They there's nothing they exactly. can do to get to heaven. Exactly. Yeah. There's no chance for them. So it turns out Based on this theory, and I like it a lot, it, it seems that this, that Ronnie wasn't an altogether terrible guy. He just, he was human, and he was flawed, and he has to be put through the ringer to purify him. Well, exactly. I mean, there's a reason why Dante doesn't just go straight to heaven to meet Beatrice right, yeah. to get to, you know, for her to say, hey, you should live a good life. He has to go through, he has to mm. go, he has to see all the possibilities that are that are waiting for him at the end of his life if he if he doesn't reform himself. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the scared. It's the original scared straight. It's like, if you do this, this it, happens. It if you is, do this, this happens. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the first scared straight program was just having out of work actors going to middle schools, middle school groups in a fake prison and reading them <laughs> the entirety of, of the divine comedy. It was actually a butcher's guild who would do that. Yeah. It was called, <laughs> It's called Scared Sleepy. <laughs> I... Scared Straight to Sleep. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh, Nick. Yeah. Well, this uh, is this has been this has been a, a a lengthy a lengthy episode. Yeah, it has, and I, I think I think we've covered it. I mean, there are we could get really nitty gritty into like critique oblique and things, but I think we've we've hit an overarching theme for all of these portions, and it's uh, I think we kind of bundled up that fourteen minutes into a suitable hour. Indeed.
Nick. Omen. What are we listening to next week? Oh, next week will be the interlude, the intermission of this play, of this passion play. It is going to be the story of the hare who lost his spectacles. Just a scant four minutes. Nick, quick 418. I am so excited about that. That is literally one of my favorite pieces of recording that I've ever heard. Is it seriously? I think I knew that. It had a big effect on me as a young person because of my love of, of radio drama and and, uh, and okay. storytelling. Okay. So I'm really excited to get there. Can't wait to hear about that. In the meantime, mm-hmm. if you are concerned about the afterlife and you are worried that when your day comes, you will be forced to cross a burning river using only the five-star ratings that you have given to podcasts, you can allay your worries by donating to your future afterlife fund by giving us five stars. I've got a, I've got a better one. If you are worried about finding yourself in the afterlife and you can only navigate by the stars that you have given oh, that's good. as a podcast review... Give us those five stars. We will create the North Star and the rest of the Big Dipper, and you. we will lead you to salvation, but only if we have been given five stars. I've heard that the afterlife is a... a... <laughs> I've heard the afterlife is a rowboat and... Okay. You you have to cross the river only using rowers who are people that you've introduced to your favorite podcasts. <laughs> and while you row yourself to Apple Podcasts for the next week, we will return with that interlude. I am Nick McGill. I am Omen Said. We are Feckless Momes. And this is Talk Tall to Me. I've heard that the afterlife is is a bridge made out of bricks, and each brick is a Jethro Tull song that has a Talk Tull to Me episode allocated to it. And each one that you've listened to is a, bri- a brick to get over that chasm to salvation. Wow. Hmm. I've, I've heard that the afterlife is a series of Jethro Tull lyrics that you have to correctly interpret. And you can only interpret them using the interpretations given to you by the feckless momes of Talk Tall to Me, which I don't know if you knew this, but also I've heard that in the afterlife, Talk Tall to Me is a proud member of the Feckless Momes audio network. <laughs>